0: My Patriot Supply also has solar power generators, water filtration units, biomass stoves, heirloom seeds, and critical survival gear. Shop MyPatriotSupply.com today. MyPatriotSupply.com. It's time for today's Lucky Land horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say.
1: Good evening, this is To Be Discussed with Cup and Gurr, a show that proves that different political opinions do not have to end in feuds and a breakdown of friendships. My name is George Cup and I'll be joined by my co-host
2: and political opposite Callum Gurr. Good evening everybody. That's right, George is a hard tier and truly conservative. Whereas I'm a libben and Ramona, but despite these different standpoints, we are still good friends. Tonight we'll be asking, is the United Nations effective in promoting world peace? What is the best movie of all time? And finally, Do you know the difference between type 1 and type 2 diabetes? With each of these discussions being accompanied by polls, which you have the chance to vote on at wizardradio.co.uk forward slash listen. And these discussions will be open until the end of the song break between each topic. But first, last
1: week we asked you to send in your opinions on the following question. In 200 years... What will our generation be remembered for? So as always you guys have been sending in lots and lots and lots of messages. Um and if I can have it my way, the our generation will be remembered for sending in messages to uh to be discussed. But there we go. Wow. <laughs> but our first message comes in from joanna and she says i think that our generation will be remembered for our role in fighting climate change generations before us have discovered climate change and done nothing about it but we're the first generation to really take it seriously and see how much it threatens our future and our way of life whether it's protests like uh, the likes of Greta Thunberg, or the thoughts, the sorts of jobs we might get in the future to help us fight against climate change. I really think that our generation could help to save the world. Well, that's a powerful speech, Callum.
2: Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, I I hope that we are the generation that helps to save the world. I mean, it's a, it's obviously it's a bit of a daunting prospect, really. Um, but um, yeah. I think I think it certainly is something that um, we could be remembered for being the generation that fights climate change. I mean, obviously, this um, this topic actually come from a message we got in when we'd done um, one of our uh, sending your questions for me and George to answer. And when I answered that question originally, I did say uh, that I think it was probably what we'd be remembered for would be um, being the, uh, the last... Generation that had a chance to um, change our ways, change our society in in many senses mm. um, before climate change takes effects, which are then irreversible. Um, so I think that's very much of the same kind of uh, opinion as what Joanna said here. Uh, And obviously, Joanna's taken a a very optimistic line towards this. And I think that's really good. Um, And I think think she's dead right, that actually, um, that even something as simple as the sorts of jobs we might have in the future are going to be massively, massively impacted um, by climate change. And hopefully for the better. And by that, I mean, hopefully it means because we've modified our jobs so that they are far Better for the environment, far more carbon neutral, um, and all of these things. What do you think, George?
1: Yeah, I think definitely it will be one of the things that we should be remembered for, um, we have the chance to make an impact on the future um, of our own lives. And I think that's why it's also so important. It's not just the the future of people's lives after us. It's the future of our own lives that we could change by, by adopting these new policies and different approaches of life. Um, And I, and I think it's, it's good that we are recognizing it. And and I absolutely do agree that we will be remembered for um, changing the planet.
2: Mm-hmm. Uh, moving on to our next uh, opinion it's from rachel rachel said we are the first generation to grow up with social media from the time we were born and through to the rest of our lives and that is such a major thing that we be remembered as the social media generation that could be a good thing or a really bad thing time will tell but i just hope that social media ends up becoming Um, ends up becoming an amazing thing, like how it was first advertised, and not a Chinese-style tracking tool, which destroys our life. (laughs) I mean, George, what, what do you make of that? Well... I think Rachel
1: makes a very good point in the terms that we are the first generation that has grown up with social media. Um yeah. And I think specifically if I, I want to kind of just quickly focus on Callum and my generation, because we were really the generation that yeah. it suddenly came a new thing when we were growing up. Um And I think, Maybe regretfully we were quite naive when social media came around, and we weren 't really too yeah. worried about what we posted on there um, and i 'm sure those of us who want to go into a more public life and and be scrutinized by the public will um, I, there could be elements of social media that comes around and bites us on the bottom um, and and that does worry me i I kind of hope that generations that are being brought up um with, with social media from the start have the lessons and the and the um understanding around social media that necessarily my generation our generation didn't really have around it um because it wasn't the norm it was a very new thing and we were kind of uh, in the unknown um so I, I think definitely our generation will be uh remembered for um, the use of social media and the use of technology in the way that we do use it. Um, I just, with Rachel, I do really hope that it will be um, in the remembrance of a of a positive thing, not a negative thing.
2: Yeah, yeah. I mean, do you, because um, it's very interesting what you're saying about, obviously, um, the fact that there is a, a concern, because nowadays, Um, Things that people tweet maybe when they're a lot younger and a lot more naive could come around and um, bite them in the bottom, as you say, um, later in life and really damage their future career prospects. So do you think that the risk of that is much less for uh, newer generations as such or or the generation that's coming up after us? I would like to think so because I would like to think
1: that the understanding around it is a lot more, um, and I would like to think that we were the generation that kind of made the mistakes on social media, and that yeah. I would hope that young generations don't make those same mistakes. I mean, obviously, everyone makes mistakes, but even still, I, I hope that because also social social media, as time has gone on, as we have seen, it's got more advanced, more developed, um, and it has mean that is meant, excuse me, that. Um, people are safer online you know when it was a new thing that happened there was security issues people could could get hacked people you know all kinds of these things and and i think as time has gone on social media has got a more safer platform but is it Not something that worries you, Callum, that, you know, when maybe one day you do become um, the Laura Croonsberg of um, the political uh, journalist world. Do you not think it's going to be a little bit strange when you're hard, when you're questioning someone about, let's say, maybe me um, on TV, questioning me about um, why we should be leaving the EU because you're a journalist and neutral. And I turn around and say, yeah, but on Facebook, you turn around and said that we should have stayed in the EU. Is that not something that worries you?
2: Um. Yes. I, I mean, I guess that there is a massive um, problem in terms of um, neutrality of the press and, and things like that. And obviously, social media will play a much bigger role in exposing um, journalists who are less than neutral. Um. But I think pro- probably as well, I, I am worried about it, not necessarily for those perspectives, because I think my views are quite well documented. And I'd be silly to try and pretend I don't hold those views, didn't hold those views, that, that sort of thing. Um, however, um, there is also the risk that maybe I've in the past tweeted something which now I don't agree with, or or I've posted on Facebook something which now I don't agree with. But as effectively, I don't think people would care as such because um, social media... <laughs> seems to or, or when people look at social media they assume that people don't have that room to to change their mind and um, so I think that's a, a really big worry anyway, just f- from like social media histories and things like that.
1: Yeah. Um, Our next opinion comes in from Alex and they say this is such a hard question because our generation is really only in the first like quarter or even sixth of our life. But I think that in a few years we're going to look at the, the amount we use our mobile phones the same way as we look at smoking cigarettes. So I think we will probably be remembered for health issues we develop because of mobile phones. Well, do you know, I never even thought of that, Callum.
2: Yeah, no, it's not something I when I was thinking of this question I necessarily thought of. I think it is a really um, strong point from Alex there. Um, And I I think more generally, I think there is a a big concern about the kind of health issues future generations are going to have because our generation, luckily, George, mine and yours, maybe Alex's as well, I think we... Because we were right at the start of social media and everyone having mobile phones and all of that, we still did have a childhood where we went out and played outdoors, Mm. where we used our imagination, and all of these things were actually really quite um, important for childhood development. I am concerned that the generation following us not so much get that because mobile phones and social media in general and the internet are so... Um, pervasive across all elements of, of life now and um, mm. so so i think there is a concern there and, and about the health issues that that alex has flagged up. what do you think george
1: yeah i, I think it's it's something that is um really important and as you said Calum, and i said earlier it's not something that i actually really thought about um and i i think it's very right that we are definitely really focused on, on having a phone in our hand. I mean, it's the, it's the port of information there. The amount, you know, I couldn't really do my job as well as I do without my phone because the amount of information that I get from it is incredible and, and it allows me to, to have contact with people that I need to have contact with. Um, and I, I find it interesting with the, the argument around, um, phones because, If we have the approach that we've had recently with cigarettes, where cigarettes are now trying to be phased out, is there room to say then that in the future we will see us try and phase out the use of mobile phones and, and try not to be so reliant on mobile phones and try and have that more of a childhood where we are outside, where we are playing with our friends and not just sitting on a computer or an Xbox or a PlayStation? Um, and I think that is a really important point that we could be looking at a completely different future um, with with phones. I mean, I I realized the other day when I was on my phone, the way I put my phone in my hand, it sits on my little finger in my left um, left hand. And I now have a little dent in my finger where where my phone has sat so often um, and it's quite worrying. And and I I genuinely I mean, I know this is probably a bit hypothetical, but um, I do wonder whether or not, because we use our mobile phones so much, whether through evolution our hands or eyesight might slowly change around technology that we have today.
2: Yeah, yeah, that is a really interesting point. It's not one I'd certainly thought of. Um, I guess, I mean, it's probably unlikely to affect um, anything in our lifetime, but it's certainly possible and uh, in the future. um,
1: Absolutely, absolutely yeah absolutely right okay so remember we will be announcing what the question will be for you to send in your opinions on at the end of tonight's show so make sure you're ready for that for the chance to be featured in this segment of next week's show but it is now time for Callum and I's first song break of this evening so we'll be back very soon
2: Hello and welcome back to To Be Discussed. Time to move on to our second discussion of this evening. And we are asking the question, is the United Nations effective in promoting world peace? So last Thursday, that's the 24th of October, was United Nations Day, which is a day designed to commemorate the signing of the Charter of the United Nations in 1945 on the same day, the 24th of October. The event officially um, shall be devoted to making known to the people of the world the aims and achievements of the United Nations and to gaining their support for its work. One of the biggest aims of the UN is to promote world peace, with the jury still being out on whether it is effective in ensuring this happens. Conflicts like Kosovo and Sierra Leone are seen as successes of the organisation but there are many cases where it has failed to keep the peace. George, overall, do you think the UN has been effective in promoting world peace?
1: Well, I'm so happy you've asked me this question, Callum. Um... I, As you've clearly said in the introduction there, the UN came about to promote peace and security for countries all across the world and ensure that we don't end up in the same situation that we did around World War um, II and um, to make sure that potentially a World War III never, ever happens. Yeah, I, I think it's very hard to ensure that countries are always peaceful, that they are always engaging in um, diplomatic conversations and that they are all agreeing because through all the countries in the world, you have different ideologies, you have different policies, you have different political outlooks. um, And because of that, it's very hard for each country to see eye to eye over certain matters that affect the whole world. And of course, you're going to get disagreements. I mean if you have disagreements with your friends, then I think it's only natural that leaders of countries have disagreements as well over certain matters. It's only a natural thing to happen. So firstly, I, I want to compliment the UN for even being set up and for even having the, um, encouragement to to ensure that we are promoting the idea of of a peaceful um, time to and, and make sure that that war is never the, the first answer. Um, and I mean, I have argued many a time on this radio show about that. I uh, am someone that would much prefer the diplomatic approach rather than going in with um, guns and shooting everyone. Yeah. Um and over its time, the UN has um, right now the, the UN has 14 peacekeeping operations going on currently. Since 1948, there has been 71 deployed um, since uh, 71 police operations uh, deployed, and the majority of those have been successful. The 14 that are going on right now, um, from reports that I've read, are saying that they are progressively successful and that they they do seem as if there is a peaceful um, process going on which is good and i i think that the way i look at it is the un don't just go in and say right we need peace we need to to stop this or to, to stop this war is that if there has been a war that go has gone on, they have different policies in place, like a peace building process where um if a country's gone through war, they will go in there, they will give them advice about how to um emerge from that conflict how what policies to put in place, how to um come around from it what what's best way forward for the country um and also i think what is most important about the un is they have the general assembly and all member states of that general assembly can meet up and discuss certain issues that they have with one another um to ensure that they don't have to go straight in um to war to get their argument across so i would say overall the un has been effective in promoting world peace but what do you think adam
2: I'd say it's been effective in promoting world peace as an idea. Yeah. Um, I think you'd struggle to find a nation that says it wants war as such. But I think in practice, it's obviously not been as effective as it potentially could be. Although I think that's maybe a little bit too harsh because I think, unfortunately, uh, war is just a, a, a fact of life between... Um, all societies, really, not even just modern societies, but look back all through history, there's always war because, as you say, people fall out and this is, like, the the ultimate um, and uh, most horrible kind of end game to mm. an argument, really, yeah. is war. Yeah. Um, so, so I think in that sense um, it would be harsh to say it's not been effective in promoting World peace, but we do also have to accept the fact that you know it's not been entirely successful. I think the trouble with the UN is that quite often it is forced to stand on the sidelines because the Security Council, um, which is made up of I believe five states, yeah. um, or at least five permanent members, um, they just cannot agree on, on, on what to do. Um, I mean, if we look at the, in the Syrian conflict, um, we saw uh, Russia veto in action against uh, General Assad um, when the United States uh, and um, the UK, and I believe France as well, mm-hmm. wanted to, um, you know, condemn Assad, but also um, possibly launch a, a peacekeeping mission there to keep, people safe um and, and so i don't know really who, who you blame in that scenario as such you know, whether or not we, we say that it's the un's fault because structurally it's prevented from doing things because of you know the procedures it has in place which is that members of the security council have a veto uh, and things like that or whether or not we say it's actually the fault of these rogue states um like Russia, that I do appreciate, that often uh, Russia has a point as such, um, mm-hmm. and, you know, that we, we have to bear in mind sometimes their um, issues that they have, even if I think often, you know, that they're um, maybe a little bit too aggressive, and yeah. um, things you- like that.
1: Do you think then, if we're looking at the system of um, the Security Council, as it were, um, do you think that we it is the wrong process to have countries come together and a and, and majority of them say that they want to do something? And just because one country has a beta, then that decision has to be cleared. Do you think they should have the view or take the view that um, because a majority is saying that they want it, then that should go ahead?
0: Um,
2: it's a really difficult one. Uh, In in kind of as a conceptual idea, I think, yes, I I would agree that uh, it should just be the majority rules as such, Um, in in many ways anyway. Um, Although you can certainly see a scenario where a a country that maybe is, uh, you know, alone in terms of it's the only country that um, has as a state religion, as a certain religion, for example you could see a scenario in which the majority rules to effectively you know, carry out a peacekeeping mission never never um, uh, attack them, effectively. Um, yeah. so, so there is a concern there. But I think in general, in reality, we, we do know that m- modern states aren't too much like that, or certainly there's enough that a majority would need to be of right-thinking people generally, I suppose would be the way I I, I would put it Um, but it's a very difficult one
1: do you you think as well I'm going to be a little bit controversial here Mm -hmm. do you think that um, because Russia um, is a bit volatile um, as a country do you think that it is likely that they have more of a say or their veto is more influential on decisions because the UN know that if um, they turn around and say, ignore Russia's idea, then it's it, out of all the countries on that council that it could be Russia would, that we, would stick up a fuss.
2: Yeah, I think there is obviously a precedent for the fact that, that Russia's got a history of um, not just kicking up a fuss, but actually um, committing troops to things. Obviously, we've seen it in Syria, but we we also saw it... Um, uh, in Chechnya as well. Um, so the, you know that that is going to mean that you do almost trust that if Russia's got a problem with something, they're going to do something about it. It's yeah. the kind of softer power we often see from the more Western powers, although maybe that has changed slightly with Donald Trump in the States. Um, yeah. But it does mean that maybe when they're kicking up a fuss, you think you can and um, talk them round a little bit more. I mean, what do you think of that, George? I,
1: de- I definitely think that, unfortunately, because of the history behind countries like Russia, um, it, it, it it's like so because they have that decision and because they have a problem with it, it's like as if the other countries have to kind of walk on eggshells to make sure that they're trying to please Russia to make sure that they aren't being volatile over the decisions that are being made. Um, And I, and I think that is unfortunate that in actual fact, the person, the people that we're trying to um, stop being aggressive have in a way the most control over the council, because they are threatening to be aggressive.
2: Yeah, yeah, it's a sad set of affairs. I'm really interested actually to see how this poll um, turns out, whether or not people think the United Nations has been effective in promoting world peace. I mean, what do you think people are going to say, George?
1: I think it's going to be very close. And going on my record that I'm doing very well on polls so far, <laughs> I'm going to say that it's going to be 52% uh, yes. And 48% no. Oh, that that's lucky me, number.
2: Yeah, I was going to say that's giving me horrible, horrible numbers, <laughs> Um, I, I've, I'm going to say that people are going to say no, but yeah, again, by a, a small small number. We'll, we'll say I say the reverse. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> right then, time for a second to record this but remember to vote on this poll. Is the United Nations effective in promoting world peace? You can do that with www.radio.co.uk forward slash listen and we'll be back very soon. Hello and welcome back to To Be Discussed. So before the break we ask, is the United Nations effective in promoting world peace? And to find out the results... To that poll, head over to our Twitter page, that's at WizRadio.
1: Okay, so let's move on to our third discussion of this evening, and we're asking the question. What is the best movie of all time? Now, before any of you listeners are going to sit there and say that Callum and I have only picked the following movies because um, they're our favourites, I can tell you now that that isn't necessarily true. We have gone on from the IMDB ratings of the films, um, which are the the highest rating films. So we've put those into there. So you can't sit there and say that these are only the films that Callum and I like because some of them I haven't even seen. So (laughs) so uh so you know every everybody has their favorite films everybody loves films i believe but it's always very very hard to be able to sit there and say which film is actually your favorite or which is the best film ever produced of all time so out of the following which one would you pick the godfather the shawshank redemption dark knight Lord of the Rings, Return of the King, Pulp Fiction, or the famous film Other. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Before I throw it to all of you lovely listeners, we've got to throw it to um, the famous film critic that is Mr. Callum Gurr. What are your thoughts?
2: (laughs) Oh, I was just thinking there probably is a film called Other. And, <laughs> and so someone's going to be really happy if if that one ends <laughs> up winning, or the fact they've even made the list, they're going to be really, really that's, happy.
1: That's the only one I've seen.
2: <laughs> um, well, actually, that was a question I was going to um, throw to you before uh, before I answer, as so such, George. How many of these films have you seen?
1: I have seen uh, three or four of them.
2: <laughs> what do you mean
1: all four? I, I can't remember if I've seen Pulp Fiction or not.
2: Oh, okay. Well, that's really not helpful because I—that's the only film here I haven't seen. Pulp Fiction. Oh, yeah. Uh, we should have done our homework, shouldn't we? We should before, have really, yeah, before coming on. So, um, <laughs> I, I'm afraid that our case for Pulp Fiction is probably not going to be as strong as as the rest <laughs> because we haven't um, we haven't seen them. Uh, uh, but um, no, as, as I say, I have seen all but Pulp Fiction, um, and I'd say out of all of these films, the best of the lot is The Shawshank Redemption. Um, And I I think the reason I say that is because it just... It's the twist at the end, and I don't want to kind of... um, Yeah, don't ruin it. I don't want to ruin it, but the twist at the end does come very, very unexpected. But also, I think... The Shawshank Redemption does provide a really powerful social commentary um, on uh, the American prison system and and things like that. So, on that basis, I'd say The Shawshank Redemption is the best movie there. The Godfather is also a fantastic film. Um, Probably some eagle-eyed listeners, or (laughs) eagle-eared listeners, uh, will be saying, why is The Godfather Part 2 not on there? Uh, And technically, on the IMDB rankings, I believe The Godfather Part 2 should be in there, uh, but we just didn't want to put in two of... Well, they're not obviously the same film, but two Godfather films, uh, just because it gets very confusing for people, I think, sometimes knowing which one's which and and all of that. So we've just gone with The Godfather, but... um, you know, obviously The Godfather Part Two is fantastic as well. The Dark Knight, obviously, amazing. Although it does lead a question on whether or not now The Dark Knight is an example of the best Joker or the best um, actor playing the Joker. Because I think um, Joking uh, Phoenix has played it immensely in this new Joker movie. Um, and so, you know, and actually... On the IMDb rankings as well, The Joker was actually really up there, Um, but because it's so recent a film, um, I don't think it was really fair to include it in all time, because quite often films have high IMDb rankings early on, and then there's a kind of, maybe they depreciate in quality over time, or, or, or things like that. And of course, Lord of the Rings, I think, will probably come top in this list, just because The Lord of the Rings is so iconic and it's become a massive classic amongst our generation. But George, Mm. what do you think?
1: I thought you were never going to shut up. (laughs) Um, The... I'll just as you've been talking actually I'm quite happy you've been talking because I've just been noting down some things. Yeah. Um so I just quickly wanted to have a look at what the general public are saying about these and yeah. um it's quite interesting. So The Godfather actually ranks the highest out on Rotten Tomatoes at 98%. Right. Um, Dark Knight is at 94%, Lord of the Rings at 94%, um Pulp Fiction at 92% and The Shawshank Redemption only at 90%. Um which quite surprised me actually. But I must say that my favourite out of all of these definitely, definitely has to be um, Lord of the Rings. I I, I remember watching it as a child, and I I must admit, I don't think when I was younger I overly understood the whole concept of it. And I was a bit of a scaredy-cat, and I didn't watch most of it. I was behind a pillow. Um, (laughs) Wow. And... (laughs) i i um always wanted to be gandalf um but (laughs) unfortunately unfortunately, i don't have the beards to do it so um i still believe that one day i'll be able to grow the beard um and it's a film that allows me to keep going back to it Um, and every time i watch it i understand it more and more and more um and my mum has um this idea that she really wants to be able to sit down for a day and watch all of the Lord of the Rings from start to finish even the hobbits um from start to finish and just binge all of them and I mean I don't know when we're going to have time to do that but you never know uh yeah. it would be something quite good to do I would love to do it um I mean second place for me probably has to be um The a Dark Knight because I just feel that that whole film was so well acted and so well portrayed um and as you say the joker in that film was just fabulously acted um and i haven't seen the new joker film so i'm not going to talk about that because it would be wrong for me to do so um but i i it's one of those films that even though it is kind of like a superhero film but it is and it isn't um I don't, I'm not really a fan of superhero films, yet yeah. it's a film that I can absolutely put on and enjoy immensely. Um, if you want something that's, you know, a bit more emotional, a bit more hard struck, then definitely put on Short Sound Redemption. If you fancy a bit of a cry, get it on there. Um, cause I definitely shed a tear at that. Um, cause it's a beautiful film. It's a very hard hitting film, but at the same time, for the era that it was made, um, I think it's really well done and, and the, cinematic qualities of it as well are just beautiful. So, um, some of the shots and everything, it really um, gives a really clear picture and idea, as Canon says, of the prison system in America in the time. Um, so yeah, I, as hard as it is for me to pick which one, I def- I'm going to stick to um, my first ruling and say The Lord of the Rings um, absolutely.
2: Fair enough, fair enough. And I, th- I think it's um, really interesting though, because all of these films um, are based. Uh, although I'm not entirely sure about Pulp Fiction, but at least four of these films are based upon other source material. Not they're not just screenplays as such. You know, The Godfather is a book originally. Shawshank Redemption, I believe, is a book as well. Obviously, Dark Knight is based upon comic books, and Lord of the Rings, obviously, is a, a is a book series as well. Um, so, so do you think that? Good cinema, as such, um, needs to have another source material to call upon to make the plot the most impactful, George. I, I think it definitely helps. Like if we look at, for example, Harry
1: Potter as well and, and, and the and the Game of Thrones as well, I, I think it's evidence. And I'm sorry to, to go on about Game of Thrones a little bit here, but when that we came to the last season because that book hadn't been written or released. to me it felt like that season dropped away because it didn't really have that originality and that um, the book to go from and they had to do it on their own steam Um, I know George R. R. Martin did help with with that but even still I don't think it had the same effect as it would have if the book was in place Um, and I think it ultimately with all of these films absolutely it helps immensely when you have a book in place because when people read books they like to imagine that what is going on in their heads you know they like to picture the events that have been described on on the page and by going to the film you can actually see those things that you have imagined on the screen in reality um and i think that creates makes a film so much more special um by kind of clarifying your imagination
2: what what do you think though yeah no i think um you know, having other source material is uh, massively important. And I, I will say as well, Pulp Fiction is uh, loosely, and I say loosely, but it is loosely based upon uh, the Black Mask magazine as well. Um, so, so I guess you could say all of them do mm. have some kind of other uh, influence upon them. Although I think that another interesting thing about this is that not all of these books have really got the same mass market appeal. Or, um, as what the film about them does have. But I think that's also a commentary on the fact that uh, obviously people are more oh, they, happy to watch oh, a film yeah. than to read a book. But <laughs> there we are, myself included, I will say. <laughs> um, and what, what out of these do you think is going to win, Callum? Uh, I think Lord of the Rings is going to come out on top just because, you know, everyone likes Lord of the Rings. Uh, and everyone has watched Lord of the Rings, really. So I just think this is going to come on top. What about you?
1: Definitely, um, other. It's a really good film. <laughs> um, no, I, I think it's going to be, ah, uh, between Lord of the Rings or Dark Knight. Okay, very important. I'm, I'm going to be on the fence. Um, but remember to vote on this question: What is the best movie of all time? So it is between The Godfather, The Shawshank Redemption, Dark Knight, Lord of the Rings: Return of the King, Pulp Fiction, or other. And you can do that on code u k forward slash listen, and we'll be back before you even know it. Hello and welcome back. So, before that break, we asked the question what is the best movie of all time? And to find out the results of that, please go to our Twitter page.
2: That's at WizRadio. Right then, time to move on to our fourth discussion of this evening. And we are asking the question do you know the difference between type 1 and type 2 diabetes? <laughs> And I'm—I've got to say that um, in terms of how these introductions have matched up this week, I, I think George is much better placed uh, to talk about these kind of things than me because George does actually have diabetes. So, so, George, do you want to talk us through the difference then between type one and type two diabetes?
1: So, I mean, let's just uh, be honest here. If, if this was—if you were a to Callum, you'd be voting no on this question.
2: Yes, I would.
1: I mean, I, I'm surprised you don't know the difference because I mean, we've been friends what all our lives, and I've had di- type one diabetes for nearly eight years now, yeah. and as you know,
2: it's not something that
1: I hide. So
2: well, I, I think I think I vaguely know the difference. To be fair, okay, all right. So should I should I try and say what I think it is and then please do please Let's do that. all listeners listen out to the end to see whether or not I'm, I'm wrong <laughs> sort of thing. <laughs> um, I. I I believe the type 1 diabetes mm-hmm. is the hereditary one. Right. And type 2 is the one which uh, you can develop in life and then also you can make much less severe through um, dietary decisions and exercise decisions and things like this. Is, am I correct in that?
1: Well, let's have a drum roll, please. Um... Mm-hmm. Ah. This isn't good for this kind of topic, George. I know, I do. Well, I, do you know what? I think it is though, because I I believe that that you've got to see a light side to to things like this. Um, and I think it's good to have a bit of a joke about it, to be honest with you. Fair um, enough. Yeah. So type you are, you are actually very correct. Type one is hereditary. Um, you get it through obviously members of your family. Um, if you've got it in your Ancestry genes, um, then you are more likely to become type one. My, um, grandpa on my mum's side had it and my grandma on my dad's side had it. So I kind of had no hope. Um, yeah. And I got it. And type two, as you again, you're very correct in saying, Callum, is indeed um through diet decisions. So if you eat too much sugar, um, if you are potentially overweight, then you are more likely to have type two diabetes. And but if you change the way that you um, eat and change your diet to less sugary and carbon based um carbohydrates then you will uh, you can get rid of type 2 diabetes and essentially as well type 1 is where your body attacks your pancreas um, which is the part of your body which makes the uh, hormone insulin and type right. 1 people don't have insulin being pumped around their body so we have to take injections um, when we eat when we go to bed um, and our blood sugars can flux up and down um, depending on what we've eaten, whereas type two, their pancreas still works. It just can't work hard enough with the amount of sugar or carbohydrates that are going into the body. So to help that, you have to take tablets to encourage your pancreas to produce more um, insulin. And also, I'm pretty sure the tablets as well have a level of insulin in them as well. Um, I think as I think the thing with type one and type two as well is that no one actually knows what causes type 1 diabetes there are theories around it but no one right. actually has an answer as to what why it's brought about um, because it is literally your immune system one day decides to attack your pancreas and kill it off um, and it's a very painful process i remember the day when it happened um, it's horrible and it's 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 not a very nice thing to go through and type 1 as well especially people that have it from a young age if you don't look after yourself properly if you don't maintain your blood sugars at a low level you are very likely to potentially lose the ability to have children when you're older lose your eyesight have a heart attack have stroke lose your limbs um there are many causes of diabetes um when you're older if you don't look after yourself that are quite scary and i and i i am someone that I I believe that there isn't enough awareness around type one, especially diabetes. Um, I think people are more aware of type two because it's always in the headlines on the NHS and everything. But I, people don't hear enough about type one diabetes. And I think that's a shame. Um, And unfortunately right now, um, a lot of the funding that we are seeing um, within the NHS isn't being spent on type one diabetes. It's being spent on type two diabetes um, because that is an area of diabetes that is increasing massively. Um, and I maybe wrongly, but I have the opinion that the people that have got type one diabetes through no cause of their own deserve more of a right to have the attention put on them than someone that has um Put themselves in the situation where they have diabetes, um, but that is my my own opinion. I, of course, I'm going to say that because I'm a type one diabetic. Um, but but yeah, so there there is a little um, kind of very very brief summary of the difference between type one and type two diabetes. Um, and I'm hoping now that all of you are going to vote yes on do you know the difference between type one and type two diabetes.
2: <laughs> Yes, uh, well, I will certainly be voting yes now, George. Um, what What do you think, because uh, you mentioned obviously that the majority of support tends to go towards type 2 diabetics. Mm. Um, what more support do you think there should be for type 1 diabetics?
1: I think um, there needs to be a bigger element of research around di- uh, type 1 diabetes in terms of getting a artificial pancreas in place so we don't have to take injections every day. Yeah. Um, and it's after doing it for eight years, it just becomes part of your everyday life. And you don't even think about giving injections. You just do it. Um, it you know, it's just, a part of a routine, yeah. and I think that there has been research in the past about um, artificial pancreases, and there has been even transplants with pancreases. But they discovered that you have to have two pancreases to make sure that you you can actually um, the pancreas works. But even then, only thirty five percent of those transplants actually worked on patients. Um, and there just needs to be a lot more research around the the um, development of making sure people can be more healthy with type 1 diabetes in ensuring that they can have a functioning artificial pancreas.
2: Right. Very interesting. I'm thinking, George, that me and you should do a fun run or something like that to raise money for Diabetes UK or something I, along those lines. I'm, I mean, I'm very happy for you to run
1: um, <laughs> and I will walk.
2: <laughs> Fair enough, it's eats to their own and all of that. Uh, right then, time to go on to our final song break of this evening. But don't forget to vote on this poll. Do you know the difference between type 1 and type 2 diabetes? You can do that at wizardradio.co.uk forward to listen and we'll be back very soon. Hello and welcome back. So, before we ask, do you know the difference between type 1 and type 2 diabetes? And to find out the results to that poll, head over to our Twitter page, that's at with Radio. Right then, we've reached that sad time on a Sunday night to end the show. So, thanks very much for listening to To Be Discussed with Cuffinger. We hope you've enjoyed this episode.
1: As mentioned earlier, for the first segment of the next week's show, we'd like to hear your opinions on do violent games and movies encourage real life violence Um, and you can do that by sending us an email to station at wizradio.co.uk or through twitter that's at wizradio so remember that question is do violent games and movies encourage real life violence do you like my telephone voice there Um, wonderful I know thank you and we're looking forward to hearing your opinions next week. But it is now time for Callum and I to be leaving. So, as always, I have been the diabetic George Lawrence Cup, And I have been the
2: knowing the difference between type 1 and type 2 diabetes, calendar. <laughs> Thanks very much for listening, everyone. We'll be back next week for more great discussions. Goodbye, guys. Ciao for now.